we just to, to, just to catch you up, we're continuing on in Acts, and we've been following throughout this cycle, these, these last uh, four or five verses that we've talked about um, in the last couple of weeks, we've been following Paul. He's kind of the main character of the second half of the book of Acts. Actually, the Holy Spirit is, but he's the main human character <laughs> in the second half of the book of Acts. Um, and it's been a whirlwind. Like Paul, Paul has been up doing like missionary work all through um, really the, the teens, the chapters of the teens of the book of Acts. He's been doing missionary work up in, in Asia. He's traveled around a couple times, and he's finally swooping back down into Jerusalem. Um, and he, as he goes, he is expecting hard things. He's expecting hard things because, you know, every, every time he, he goes to a place on his way down, he's warned by the church, by prophets who are just saying, hey, it's going to be bad. And, and it, it does. It goes, it, it goes uh, I would say, pretty rough by any, anyone's reading. Like, it goes pretty rough. Like, within a week of being in Jerusalem, he starts a riot. He's arrested by Roman soldiers. He's brought before a Jewish council, of the Sanhedrin, where he starts a brawl. Um, and then he evades a plot to ambush and kill him. So he's had a pretty rough week. Um, and that's where we're picking up uh, here in Acts 23, 23. Okay, so he just evaded this plot, and, and uh, the, he's found out about it, and, and the Romans are, are trying to protect him. So he summoned two of his centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready with 70 cavalry uh, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Also provide mounts to ride so that Paul may be brought safely to Felix the governor. And then he wrote this letter, Claudius Lysias, that's the the one who's writing it, the, the Roman guard in charge of Jerusalem, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. Uh, when this man had been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned that he's a Roman citizen. Not really what happened, but it makes him sound good. Uh, wanting to know the charge they were accusing him of, I brought him down before their, uh, their Sanhedrin. And I found out that the accusations were concerning questions of their law and that there was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. When I was informed, uh, when I was informed that there was a plot against this man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered his accusers to state their case against him in your presence. And so the soldiers took Paul during the night and brought him to Antipas, uh, and as, he, uh, as they were ordered, and then the next day they returned to the barracks, allowing the cavalry to go on with him. And when these men entered Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him, and after he read it, he asked what province he was from. When he learned that Paul was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing whenever your accusers also get here. And he ordered that he be kept under guard in Herod's palace. So Paul uh, is pulled out of Jerusalem by Claudius Lysias, because Claudius Lysias, the commander of, of, the, of the Roman soldiers at the barracks in Jerusalem, just realizes he can't, he can't keep them safe there, because there are 40 men who have vowed not to eat or drink until they kill Paul. So, like, you know, it's just too risky to keep Paul. So finding out about this, he sends him away. And Claudius has really tried to sort this out on his own, right? He's made an effort. He's uh, brought, the, brought him before the Sanhedrin to figure out what was going on. But what comes clear to him at this point is that he just doesn't want to deal with Paul anymore. It's too risky. It's too much of a headache. And so what does he do? He, he, um, he passes Paul off. He wraps him up and puts a little note on him, and puts him on a horse, and sends him to Caesarea, where the Roman governor Felix has his, his palace, you know, where he hangs out, outside of Jerusalem, where it's more quiet, and where he can be in control. And honestly, I mean, for Paul, 
this isn't so bad. It's actually sort of progress because Jesus showed up to him, right, in, in, at the end of uh, Acts 22 and told him that he was going to go to Rome. And so to get to the Roman governor is a logical step on his path to go to Rome. So Felix, this Roman governor, uh, decides to put him up in Herod's palace. Herod is like this kind of puppet king over, over Jerusalem, but really the Romans rule. Uh, and they, they decide what goes on to the point where they can decide who gets to stay in their houses. right? So he, he puts him up in Herod's palace, and he waits for his accusers, the, the, the people who are trying to kill him, um, the, the, the Jewish high priest Ananias, to come up so that he can hear what's going on and decide what to do. So let's keep reading. Five days later, Ananias, the high priest, came down with some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and these men presented their case against Paul to the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus began to accuse him and said, well, we enjoy great peace because of you, and reforms are taking place uh, for the benefit of this nation because of your foresight. We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with utmost gratitude. But so that I will not be a burden to you any further, I request that you uh, would be kind enough to give us a brief hearing. For we have found this man to be a plague, an agitator among the Jews throughout the Roman world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple. And so we apprehended him. By examining him, him yourself, you will be able to discern the truth about these charges that we are bringing against him. And the Jews also joined in the attack, alleging that these things were true. And when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, Well, because I know you've been a judge over this nation for many years, I'm glad to offer my defense in what concerns me. You can verify for yourself that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They didn't find me arguing with anyone or causing a disturbance among the crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or anywhere in the city. Neither can they prove the charges they are now making against me. But I admit this to you. I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way which they call a sect, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets, and I have hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, and there will be a resurrection both of the, of the righteous and the unrighteous. I always strive to have a clear conscience towards God and men. And after many years, I came to bring charitable gifts and offerings uh, to my people. While I was doing this, some Jews from Asia found me ritually purified in the temple without a crowd and without any uproar. It is they who ought to be here before you bringing to, to, to bring charges, if they have anything against me. Or let, the, uh, let these men here state what wrongdoing they have found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Other than, than this one statement I shouted while standing among them, today I am on trial before you concerning the resurrection of the dead. So Paul's accusers come up to Jerusalem, and no doubt uh, at this point, um, the men who have vowed, you know, not to eat or drink have just kind of figured out a way to get off the hook for their vow, right? Probably Ananias helped them out, kind of absolved him, did some magical high priest thing, say, oh, well, yeah, you wanted to be vicious for the sake of the Lord, so it's okay, it didn't work out, you know, we'll, 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 we'll forgive you for that. So they're uh, probably off the hook for their rashness, and no doubt Ananias is frustrated because he's in a big, bit of a predicament. Uh, he really wanted to deal with Paul, and by deal with that, I mean he really wanted to kill Paul. He wanted to do anything he could to oppose this movement of, uh, of, of Jesus-following Jews in Jerusalem, which had just really grown. It had exploded. There's so many Jews turning to Jesus, and he believes uh, that's a problem because he thinks it's a threat to Israel. 
Religiously, he thinks it's a threat. He's, he doesn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and so he, he opposes Jesus, and he opposes this sect, as he calls it, this, this movement coming out of Judaism, and he's trying to put it down any way he can. But he's got a predicament, because now Paul, who he wanted to kill, is, is under major guard in a Roman fortress. So Ananias has no choice but to deal with Rome, which was not, not Ananias' favorite thing. He has to go to Felix and, and lick his boots to try to persuade him to give Paul over to him so that he can deal with him. But it's funny, in this text, Ananias, like, you, you can feel the resentment because Ananias doesn't go there and, and make an argument. What, is, what does he do? He hires a lawyer, a guy named Tertullus. Um, we don't know much about Tertullus, but uh, his name would indicate he's a good Roman, or at least a good collaborator with Rome. And so, Basically, Ananias says, I'm not going to go to Felix and tell him how great he is and ask him for a favor. That would just make me want to vomit. So I'm just going to hire this guy who's going to tell a bunch of lies about Felix to his face and try to flatter him and try to get him to do what he wants to do. So Tertullus comes, and he blows a bunch of steam, praising Felix for, oh, his great government and foresight and all the reforms he's making, which, which is really funny because um, everyone knows that's a huge lie, including Felix. Like, uh, we know from uh, Josephus, the Roman Jewish historian, and other historians at this time, that Felix was a terrible, cutthroat, selfish, self-serving governor. He did no reforms that were good. He did not do any, any great administration. Everyone knows it, including him. He made no, he made no, no, uh, no, no pretense of it. His corruption was extensive. Uh, we, we see him later in this text hoping that Paul will give him a bribe because that was his thing. He was just looking to enrich himself. Um, and historians have noticed his, his mismanagement. Um, and, and even Felix, uh, Felix later, after, after Ananias uh, is deposed from his office through, through political means, uh, another high priest comes in, just like a couple years after this, named Jonathan, and he's like put in place, but Felix has him assassinated. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of politicking going on here, and Ananias uh, and Felix do not get along. Um, so Ananias is no doubt just sitting in the corner, just biting his tongue, hoping that this flattery will get him somewhere, and hoping that he can just get out of this place and, and, get, and get what he wants, get Paul. And so, so they come, and he makes this accusation, he says he's desecrating the temple, and he's doing all these things, and he just, just made up stuff. And so Paul comes, and he, and he follows the accusation, and he, Paul makes his defense, and he explains, look, I didn't do anything. And he explains why he's really being accused. He tries to bring out the tensions, because Felix might not be aware. He says this um, in, in the middle of that section that we, we, we read, I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way which they call a sect, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. I have hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, and there will, that, that there will be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteousness, and I always strive to have a clear conscience towards God and men. He says, if you can accuse me of anything, this is it. Um, I have this, he, he, he's, he's saying, I have the same hope that these Jewish men have, that Ananias has, and the men who tried to kill me, or the ones who found me out in the temple and, tr and tried to, uh, try to beat me to death there. He says, we share the same hope. 
says, we share a common ancestry. We are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our God. He's saying, that's no different. He says, I do, he admits, practice according to the way, which these people call a sect. So I have this kind of different take about, about what it means for us to follow after God. He says, but, but we share the same hope. We share a resurrection. We, we know about judgments. And I strive to have a clear conscience towards God and men. See, see, Paul sees it. He sees that he's on trial, not because he's done anything to desecrate the temple or against the law and the prophets. He says, I'm all for the law and the prophets. I'm, I'm the one who's trying to keep the law and the prophets. But I understand this, that Jesus has said that he's the way. Like Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, all the Jews, Ananias and everyone, all the Pharisees, everyone was hoping that they could worship God and come to the Father and be, have him be present with them. They, they were people who had the hope and expectation that God was going to fulfill the promises that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Moses, to, throughout their whole history. They believed that it was their calling to worship their God according to knowledge and according to truth to live a life of hope and expectations of his coming. They all agreed on that, but this way believed that Jesus was the one, the Messiah that they'd all been waiting for, that Jesus was the prophet, the priest, the king, the leader that Moses had told them was going to come. He'd finally come, and it was their responsibility to worship Jesus because he is God in the flesh. So he's saying, if there's anything that we disagree on, it's this. The person of Jesus, those of the way believe that he is the way, the truth, the life, that no one comes to the Father except through trusting and believing in Jesus. And that's because Jesus made claims about him, his own self. In John eleven twenty five, he says this, I am the resurrection and the life, this common hope that they have, that one day they'll stand before God resurrected. Jesus says, if you want that, if you want to be accounted righteousness, righteous, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Paul has said, we share the same thing, but I am sold out on this Jesus person, that he is truly the one who's going to bring me safely before God, safely into the resurrection of righteousness and unrighteousness, and I'm going to stand before God righteous because I've trusted in and believed in and put my faith in only what Jesus has done. I put my faith in the sacrifice that he made on the cross to take away my sin, and I put my faith in and my confidence in that I am securely in the love of God simply by what Jesus has done. And so his faith commitment, which is distinct, the way that he's walking and the way that these early Christians walked is they said, yeah, we 100% believe the law and the prophets. We believe we're called to righteousness. We believe we're called to know God, but we do it through Jesus. We're going to stand at the resurrection through Jesus. And that remains the hope of Christians today. We stand only by grace. We stand only by by hope and trust and belief in Jesus Christ. And Paul articulates and defends, and we see him do it throughout the book of Acts and throughout his letters. He articulates and defends what the effect of trusting in Jesus is like. 
And it's led him, like he says here, to always strive to have a clear conscience towards God in men. Says, I believe the law and the prophets. I believe in the resurrection. I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. He's the one in whom there will be resurrection and life. And because I believe that, I strive to have a clean conscience towards God and man. Paul makes it clear, and I think this is like the, the strength of his argument. He makes it clear that the forgiving work of Jesus, the resurrection and the grace of Jesus, is not, is not leading him away from obedience to law. It's not leading him away from righteousness. It's not saying, oh, I'm forgiven and so I can do whatever I want. What Paul understands is that actually the, the, to stand in the grace and forgiveness of God is, is the thing which draws me towards a relationship with God so that I can actually desire to have a clean conscience before him, so that I can make much of the work of grace, that I can actually like enjoy what it is to be loved and adopted and cared for and to be in the presence of God. Grace is not, as, as, as some of the Judaizers were afraid, it is not an excuse for unrighteousness. It is actually the motive for righteousness. It's the motive to live a pure and God-honoring life, a life lived before God. The love, adoption, care, and presence of God in the world is leading him to be transformed, to just live pressing into the will of God. Christianity is not a message that amounts to try harder or do better or impressed God. Christianity, the way of Jesus, is the amazing news that God has accepted us in Christ. He's adopted us in. He's taken away all sin, all alienation, and we're invited simply to walk in the assurance of his love, his forgiveness, and his acceptance by faith. And so our mistakes are not the end of the world like they were for, for the, the Judaizers and, and for those who were opposing Paul. They would say, oh, we've got to do right by the law. Because if we don't do right by the law, God's going to be mad. Paul says, God isn't mad anymore because he's taken away sin, he's taken away error, and, and he's, he's, he's moving that stuff away and he's calling you to actually love him, not just try to manage him. He's calling you to lean into him and to know him and to put him first, not just try to keep him away and to keep him not angry. Something entirely different that Paul believes is possible because of Jesus Christ, and it is to have a clean conscience before God and men. See, the Jews, Ananias, like these Jews who did not believe, they thought they, had, they, were, they were okay with God because they acted the right kind of way just in things that God had told them not to do. And, so, and then they figured out ways to, to do what they wanted to get around those rules, right? Because it's really easy. It's really easy to get a, around rules, actually, as we all know, because we all like to break rules. Or is that just me? Instead, what he says is, look, God isn't calling us to be rule followers. He's calling us to be people who love him. God is calling us to be people who have the security and the fullness of his spirit, and who are, who are being transformed to, to seek him more, and to do what is right, and to, to let our consciences, by faith, be renewed and restored, and to let our life like, like, like be transformed inside out. 
is I'm, I'm, Paul's argument is that he's calling people to greater righteousness. And he does this conscience, Paul pays attention to conscience throughout his letters. I've got a bunch of examples. Acts, uh, just like a couple of verses earlier, he talks about conscience. When he's standing before the Sanhedrin, he says, brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. It seemed to matter to him. 1 Timothy 3.9, the, the calling of deacons, people who are going to serve in the church, it says this, hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Hebrews 13.18, pray for us, for we are, this Hebrews is not necessarily Paul. People don't, some people think it's Paul, some people it's not, so I'm sort of playing with that one. Um, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. 1 Peter uh, 3.16, also not Paul. Uh, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your, your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Christians, in case this didn't know, like from, from multiple writers across the New Testament, our conscience matters. Grace is not like, oh, I, I can do whatever I want. Like, I can just ignore my conscience. Grace brings me into a greater relationship with God where I can just say, okay, Lord, I know I'm forgiven. Even, even when I mess up, and I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to mess up. I can anticipate my messing up, and I, and I can anticipate forgiveness in the midst of that. But that doesn't mean that I don't want to try to honor you or strive to, to obey and listen and to love you well and to love others well. Paul is making this argument, and he makes it consistently that, that what, what the way does, the grace of Jesus Christ, the salvation, him coming as Messiah, it brings the Spirit of God into us, and it makes us want after the things of God, and we are safe and wise and mature when we seek out to honor him in all things. 1 Corinthians 10 uh, 31 and 33 says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Paul's making the point. He says, I'm not going to tell you all the particulars about what your life should look like. You don't have to come into a Christian and just say, I got to like live a cookie cutter existence. I've got to just live like my, my neighbors and my friends who are in the church. It's not, it's not that. Like you live your own life. Whatever you do though, whatever that thing is, whatever you're called to, we can all share this one goal, do it to the glory of God. Do it with a clean conscience. Don't sacrifice. Don't, don't think that, oh, I'm, I'm forgiven and I have grace, and so that means I'm off the hook with God. Understand that what God has done, the way that we have in Jesus, this resurrection life, is going to lead us to actually this place of security and desiring more of what God has for us. We can do all things for the glory of God, including, as he goes on, like, like serving other people, putting our own uh, our own desires, our own way of wanting to do things. I can put those things second because we're not serving a, 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 a law so that we're all cookie-cutter people. He says, we're serving the glory of God. We're serving, uh, we're, we're serving the Holy Spirit leading us. We are trying to obey and listen to him. We're trying to have our love shaped, our hearts shaped. We think that God is going to deal with us on that level. He's going to bring about Christ-likeness within us. We have a different kind of hope now that we know Jesus. And that's what Paul feels like he's being persecuted for. And it's so easy, I think, for us to, 
to have a very low vision of what it means to follow after Jesus. We are called to, to more. We are called uh, to just be, just like delight, delight in salvation, which isn't just, ah, I can do whatever I want. It's, oh man, I thought my life was just like to get through it. But it's, God, God just looks at our life and says, you have spiritual potential to partner with me, to be a part of what I'm doing in the world. All your weakness accounted for. All your failing already known. And yet still, I invite you in to be a part of what I'm doing. I invite you to bless other people. I invite you to, to be used by me to spread the good news of salvation into the world. I'm, I'm inviting you to be just a part of, of building up your family and, and, and uh, raising a generation of people who know me. Like, it's crazy that we would be invited into these things. But God says, yeah, like, like we have, we have the spirit of, spirit of God within us. Like, we have adoption. We have forgiveness. This is all by faith. All by faith and trusting in Jesus, we can come into this new kind of life. Let's keep going. We're sprinting. Since Felix was well informed about the way, he adjourned uh, the hearing, saying, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. And he ordered that the centurion keep Paul under guard, though he, could, uh, though he could have some freedom, and that he should not prevent any of his friends from meeting his needs. Several days later, when Felix came uh, with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and listened to him on the subject of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, as he spoke about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became afraid and replied, leave now. But when I have opportunity, I will call for you. And at the same time, he also was hoping that Paul would offer him some money. And so he sent for him quite often and conversed with him, hoping that eventually he'd realize that, I don't care about what you're saying, I just want the money. Nice guy. After two years had passed, Portius Festus succeeded Felix. And because Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison. What a downer. So, Paul stands trial, but Felix just says, I don't know what I'm going to do, and he puts off the decision, and he keeps Paul under guard, but he allows him some freedom. Like, it's not like he's locked in a prison, you know? It's not like this kind of a trial where it's like he's starving or being beaten or anything like that, but he's just in a nice room, like in a hotel, you know, forever. <laughs> There's room service, but can't leave. Kind of a bummer. Um... And Paul hopes, no doubt, that Felix will, will make a choice, and so he just waits, and he waits, and he waits, and every time Felix says, oh, come on back in here, hoping maybe give him, give him some money, and then Paul t talks about Jesus with them, and he sends him away, and Paul's like, I guess it's not today. I guess I'm going back to, you know, the Hyatt here, or whatever. And for years, two years, and beyond that, he lingers and he's waiting and he's holding on to hope. Holding on to hope that God still has something for him. Holding on to the promises of God like he knows he's called to go to Rome and, and witness in, in, in Rome. But he's just waiting. And the kind of trial that Paul is enduring here is something, I think, way beyond what any of us would choose or want. Or even think of as a trial. Like, when you think of a trial, what do you think of? 
I think it's, we, we normally think of a clearly defined obstacle, something that we can overcome. I see some of you guys, and I know that some of you guys like to mountain bike up hills. I don't, I don't, you go down. That's what <laughs> the gravity works for you guys. Some of you guys like to ski up hills. I, I, that's not how hills work, guys. I just want to tell you. I just, that's my opinion. I just, that's, how I, that's how I think hills work. But, but like, you know what? You probably like it because you like the trial. You see an obstacle. I'm just guessing. I'm totally speculating. I have no idea why you do this. <laughs> right? it's, like, it's like me trying to understand a crazy person. No, I'm, I'm sorry. That's not. Um, you, you see something in front of you and you say, yeah, there's a, there is something to overcome. I'm going to bike up that hill. I'm going to ski up that hill. It's not the natural way to ski, <laughs> right? I'm going to do this thing. Like, like when we see a clearly defined obstacle, like we know how to deal with trials like that. We know how to just overcome and grit our teeth and push through. When you can see a challenge in front of you, you, you probably are or have at least some capacity to plow through it. But the kind of trial that Paul is going through here, I'm just going to tell you this, it would drive you crazy. It would drive me crazy. Because you know what? We wouldn't even call it a trial. He's got room service. He probably can go swimming. He's just waiting. The trial here is boredom. The trial here is just feeling like, what am I even doing here? The trial is frustration with the people around him. Frustration that, God, I thought you called me to something. I thought, I thought we had a plan. We agreed on it. I got beaten up so that we could take the steps. And then you just let me sit here and waste my time? He's completely disempowered. That's a trial. That's the sort of trial, I think, that we don't know, particularly in, in our culture, in American culture. We don't know how to deal with those trials. We don't think of them as trials. We hate these sorts of things. But I'm just going to tell you, I think, I think the greatest, most profound trials that you will face and that I will face are the ones where you're totally disempowered to do anything about it. You can't even press through because you don't even know where you're going. You don't see the hill in front of you, so you can't just overcome it. You just like are like, what is going on? I have nothing to grab onto. I have no way to orient myself in the midst of this. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. He, he's probably having trouble even seeing this for what it is, a trial. James, with a verse you're very familiar with, think about this with this kind of trial. It says this, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. We know how to do this when things are, like when we feel it to be hard, but we're like, ah, oh, but I just need to push over this edge. We don't know how to go through trials like this, like, like when we can't even, we don't even see where we're going. But I really think we need to learn this skill. I, I know I need to learn this skill. So there's like various trials. Here's, here's a couple trials. I don't like my job. That's not a confession. <laughs> that is a, maybe that's how you feel. 
And it's like, it's like, it's like a silly trial to be in because you're like, well, I guess I, maybe I just get another job, but then you're probably not going to like that one either. Well, that's, that's a hard obstacle to overcome, right? Maybe the problem is me. <laughs> How do I, I can't see that mountain. I can't see that hill. Maybe you just don't feel satisfied with your life. You feel like you can't succeed at what you're supposed to be doing, and you have this idea of supposed to, it's really well-defined, or actually maybe not that well-defined, but it doesn't feel like this. It doesn't look like this. This is not the way things are supposed to be, and yet I just have to go back every single day, and I feel stuck, and I feel plodding, and it's like I'm on a treadmill, a treadmill of life. Like, I don't see where I'm going. I don't see the actual obstacle. I just know this isn't fun. I know I'm bored. I know I'm not satisfied. I know things are difficult. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe you aren't happy in your marriage. Maybe you're not happy in your singleness. Maybe you're not happy because you're divorced. Maybe you're like, like struggling with this thing. It's like, it's like not a thing that you can just easily fix. Like I can't, there is no amount of effort you could put in and suddenly overcome the trial. You're in these trials where you feel disempowered. Maybe your children like are, are just difficult. <laughs> Maybe they don't want to talk to you anymore. Maybe they're just going their own ways and like, how can you fix that problem? I don't know how to fix it. They're totally disempowered. Maybe you don't feel excited to wake up in the morning. You have trouble just getting out of bed. And of course, you know, I, I, would just, I, I should just do it. But then tomorrow I'm going to feel the same way and tomorrow I'm going to see the same way. You just don't feel the way you should. Like the real trials in life and the things that we really need this, this wisdom from God for are these kind of trials, the stuff where we can't even put our hands around. So let's read it again. Consider it great joy. My brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, there's all kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. I see at least three things here that I think are important. It begins with that phrase, consider it joy. Consider it joy. That's, you sit and you realize, okay, this is some kind of a trial. And the attitude, whether it be a well-defined trial or not, is I'm going to count this as a joy. Somehow, there's joy in the house of the Lord. Somehow, I'm going to account this as an opportunity. I'm going to take this and be thankful. And that's, that's easier when I say, because I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that I'm not alone in life. Really hard to count anything joy when we feel alone. I get that. But by faith, we count it joy. And we just see the trials in our lives, even the ones that we don't think of as trials, that are trials, which is most of them. And we say, okay, my strategy is joy. That's what I'm pursuing. And how do we do that? He keeps going on. He says, hold on to your faith. I'm going to go back to the verse. Where is it at? Oh, I've still got it up there. Whenever you face various trials, you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Saying, the test is, in the middle of even this kind of trial, it's, it's faith. It's a test of faith. It's, am I alone? Am I abandoned? Am I forgotten? Does my God love me? 
Does he have, am I forgiven? Or do I do this thing where I think, oh, life isn't what it should be. I've probably sinned, and God is probably mad. The blood of Jesus doesn't wash this thing away. <laughs> right? you, you, get, you get that thing where you're like, I know, he says, as far as the east is from the west, and I'll forgive anything that I come and bring at the cross. I know he says that, but not this one thing. It must be that God is angry. And so I go down this path in my mind where I, where I, I fixate. I say, things aren't the way they should be, and I feel that, and it must be my fault. And so the next logical thing is not enduring in faith, it's starting to manage God and to manipulate him and to try to make him happy and to, to feel bad enough about myself instead of just saying, yeah, life is rough right now, but I have a confidence that God has good plans, and so I'm just going to keep going, and I'm going to pursue joy. I'm not going to act joyful. I'm going to say, I know that God cares about me. I'm going to do that. I can't remember the psalm. What's, I, I'm sure some of you guys know the psalm. We sow in tears, but we reap in joy. Sometimes that's what we just do. We hold on to faith, and joy comes, and it is great joy. And, and the uh, goal of this, right, he says at the end, is endurance and maturity. What trials do, and especially trials like these kind that don't feel like trials, don't seem like trials, but they really are the most serious kind, is that they move us from one stage of life to another. We endure and we mature. Maybe this is just puberty. Which would make sense why we're so angsty. <laughs> ah, it all comes together, right? Yeah, we, we're ah, discouraged and mopey and sad about life. And yeah, like, welcome to life. We're, you're 17. <laughs> uh, or maybe you had an extended puberty. I don't know. Like, this is what it is, but we go through these things, and we endure through them with faith, and we pursue joy, and the result is maturity in the end. So that next time we actually learn, oh, this is what a trial looks like in my life. Or we learn the habits of just trusting Jesus more. We learn the habits of, of finding him in the midst of the darkest of places. Notice that the Christian life is not, your life's going to be great. It's going to be great. You're never going to go through difficult things. It's that God will always be with you in difficult things. Don't, don't count on a promise that was never spoken. It was never promised that everything's going to be great. God does want to bless us and encourage us. And we come into times where we're just fruitful and, and just like overfilled with joy. But then sometimes we go back into difficult seasons and we just persevere and endure and mature through it. Uh, Rob Reamer, he's a, he's a, I'm not sure if I said that right, but he's a pastor. He says this, Paul prays for the church at Ephesus that their inner being would be strengthened so that they would have more capacity for two things, God's spirit and God's love. It's where the, where the trials are going. More of God's spirit, more of God's love. 
He's praying that they would have stronger walls of the soul so that they can have more capacity for God's presence and God's love. Please understand, it isn't that God loves you more. God's love is perfect, unconditional, and unlimited. You aren't increasing God's love. You are increasing your experience, your revelation, your understanding of God's love. God's love hasn't changed at all. It is already perfect, but you can have more of the presence, love, and favor of God in your life. James understood this. The more you endure tests, the stronger your character and the thicker the walls of your soul can grow. I find that encouraging. See, the goal of trials is maturity. It's, 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 it's having more capacity to enjoy and experience the spirit and the love of God, the love which is always surrounding us because the kingdom is here and Jesus has forgiven us. But we grow in our capacity to experience that. And, and I think uh, uh, for a lot of us, uh, that's, that's this. It's, this I'm going to put my finger on one thing. A lot of that for us in our culture, in our time, and probably in this church in, in particular, okay, is just getting off the treadmill of performance. And this is, this is, now this one is a confession. Okay, this, is, this one is a confession. This is me talking, and I bet it's you talking. I feel better about myself when I am successful. I feel much better about myself when I am perceived to be competent and capable. I'm okay in other areas of my life, when I feel like I'm accomplishing things, getting things checked off my list, and making steady progress. And I bet you the same. And I also feel this way. The minute I feel like I am not progressing, or getting the things that I want, or impressing, but looking like an idiot, (laughs) I am not okay. And that is because I am so adapted to, and my culture, and the way I grew up, you know, that's not like my parents, that's just like the world we live in. We are so adapted to the treadmill of performance, where if we're getting ahead, we feel good about ourselves, and if we're we're getting behind, we feel bad about ourselves. And then when when we feel bad, we think, oh, the way that I'm going to feel better in this moment is I'm going to do better. I'm going to impress God. That is just not the course of grace. That's just not the gospel in my life. And I am addicted to performance. And I need to get to rehab for performance, right? <laughs> performance rehab. Bob will help me with that. Um, and here's how I'm going to do this. And this is what I'm going to invite you to. When I'm in this place where I'm in a trial where it just, oh, it just feels wrong. I'm just going to call it what it is. This is a a trial, and I'm experiencing it because I feel good about myself falsely on the basis of my performance. And I don't want to feel that way anymore because if I am standing at the resurrection because of Jesus' sacrifice, because of his forgiveness and his grace, then how could I let something else, some other rule, regulating principle, be what drives me? Actually, I just need to stand by faith in grace, and just say, the only thing I need, I don't need 
I'm not going to feel good about myself because other people perceive me to be doing well. I'm going to feel good about myself because I have a clean conscience before God because that's all that matters. I, I, I'm just saying this is what I hope to do, and I know it's going to be messy along the way. <laughs> Right, But I think we're called to this. We're called to endure these kind of trials. We're called to call them what they are. Not just, oh, it's just like things are hard right now. No, I am being tested, and I'm going to count it joy, and I am going to put on faith, and I'm going to persevere and mature through it. We need to call things what they are. If you're dissatisfied, if you're angsty, if you're just like, blah, what is life? Can I just invite you to do that? Um, there's a song I've been listening to, my, my wife. Uh, a band can come up. The worship team can come up. We're just, just, uh, my, I, I get fixated on, like, new songs that I really like, and I just play them on repeat. It's super annoying. And my wife was super annoyed, and she's like, you really like that song, don't you? And I said, yes, yes, I do. I really like this song. I want to read you some lyrics for this. This is a song by Andy Squires. <sighs> I like this a lot. It says, somewhere on the altar of broken dreams and shattered love, a burden of your mercy runs like a river on the vine. And everything I used to know is a table you turned over so my meager cup would overflow from water into wine. And I like that image. I mean, obviously, it's Jesus coming into the temple and throwing over tables because people had got in there, the money changers had got in there, and they made what God had intended, they turned it into something else. And all of my life, I think all the spiritual life is, all of this enduring through trials is this. It's that Jesus like, sees that we've set up tables in our hearts. Like, we, like we've set up different value propositions, different ideas of what it's going to mean to be successful and good. And, and we are uh, regulating grace and putting a cap on it and selling it to ourselves. When, when God has just said, no, this temple, this place, it's just a place where my presence is and where I'm kind and gracious and good and my love is flowing out into the world like it shows in Jerusalem, like a river from the temple filling the whole land and you and your heart, you're so stingy and you've damned up my grace and my kindness and you've imposed your performance on, on what I've told you is true and you think that you could earn it? When I just, I died so that you would be washed clean and know that you're adopted and loved and cared for. And just throw out the temp, like throw out the stuff. Throw out the tables, turn them over. Like the things that I do to earn God's grace are just ridiculous. They would be laughable if he weren't so grieved by them. Because God invites me into a life with him wants to turn my, my meager things into just overflowing joy with him. And that's way better than feeling competent or capable. Britt's going to come up. You going to be able to do it, Britt? Did I put you on the spot? Come on, come on. Just cry. I'm crying. We'll cry. We'll all cry. It's good. Um... It's going to come up. She's going to, it's going to lead us in communion here. We're going to take communion together. I'm excited that that worked out uh, today. So I'm going to go back here. Britt's got it. Um, guys, I don't know uh, why I'm going to say what I'm going to say. It's on my shirt. 
Um, Trey asked me to communion, and I ignored him for like a day. <laughs> and I was like, nope, 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 nope. Um, but the reality is that there's like a lot of uh, history for me with like a lot of imperfect leadership, and the and t- for me to stand and lead somebody in something that I feel is, is real and serious, spiritual. Um, I hate that position, like, and I shouldn't, but I do, because I'm terrified of doing it wrong and of causing damage to a person. And, you know, as I, like, thought about how the heck you do communion, because, <laughs> of course, Trey just sent the question mark. <laughs> like, are you going to do this? Uh, I think it's just all, like, kind of just um, coming into this space of, like, reflection on, like, why and how Jesus just uses us in our brokenness and in our, like, imperfections and how we are and how it is through his grace, you know, that we we can just be um, and find our strength in him. So anyway, just thank you guys for your grace for me. Um, but so in Luke, <coughs> it, it reads, you know, that when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And just to kind of paint that picture, Jesus had gathered his closest friends, you know, one of which he knew, and he called out, which I would have done too, <laughs> that, you know, that was going to betray him. He knew. But he still gathered his closest friends, um, knowing what was about to happen, knowing the sacrifice he was about to make, knowing the suffering he was about to endure, um, and yet knowing the value of it and the importance of it. Uh, he sat there saying, I want, to, I want to break bread with you guys. I want to be here with you and be present with you. And, um, you know, he was going to take us from a, 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 a way of life that was sacrifice and law and into a space, as Trace mentioned this morning, of grace and of relationship. Um, and he understood the weight of what he was doing, and he sat there, and I'm sure was terrified. But he also understood the worth and the value of it. And I think somewhere along the way, church, <laughs> uh, has, has s- somehow communion has become this time where we, we typically like just reflect on the sacrifice. And we reflect kind of like in a heavy way of this, like, how much we don't deserve it. When instead, I think, I think Jesus' int- intention was that we reflect on the reason for the sacrifice. And we actually take communion with great joy and with great, like, privilege of, of how amazing it is that this grace has been offered to me. That the, that the Holy Spirit is within me and that I can have relationship with him. Um, and I think, I think we've kind of messed it up along the way. You know, that we sit and we think about how much we don't deserve uh, what we've been given, but instead that we should just sit and remember that we've been given it and to kind of like say like, okay, God, what do you want me to do with this? How am I called to use this? You know, this relationship with you and these gifts and these passions that you've given me. So anyway, we're going to sing a song. (laughs) We're going to take the bread and take the juice and go back to your seats and then I'll come back up and um, once everybody's kind of gotten their stuff and then we'll... uh, We'll pray. But I kind of want you guys to just be reflective of that. I, don't, I just feel really like was pulled to that of like, have we gotten it quite right? You know, I think there's a time and a space for us to feel conviction, you know, of like, oh, I, I'm so undeserving of this.
but I, but I, I know that when I offer a sacrifice to somebody, when I give something, I don't give it so that they realize I've sacrificed. <laughs> I give it so that they can better themselves and so that they can then go and do some, you know, whatever it is. And so, like, I want to just, like, ask and kind of reflect, like, you know, are we using this well? Are we using this life that we've been given and the relationship we've been given to how he intends it to be? So let's worship, and then I'll come back and we'll pray, and we'll do it together.